0: Normally, when we think of gratitude, we think about it as a personal practice, an experience just for ourselves. But how might gratitude be expressed and experienced in community? We'll be talking with Diana Butler Bass about that. She wrote the book, Grateful. Stay tuned for Good God. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm George Mason, your host, and I'd like to welcome back to the program, Dr. Diana Butler-Bass. Hi there. Diana, glad to have you again. Uh, We got to talking in our first episode with you about your new book that is called Grateful the transformative power of giving thanks. And mostly in that episode, we talked about gratitude in a more personal way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet much of the direction that you're taking this book and challenging us all to think about is the social and political aspect of how uh, gratitude needs to be reconfigured, rethought about uh, in order for us to have a healthier society, not just to be healthy as individuals. And, and so part of your contention uh, is that we, we've been operating off of a latent hierarchical system about Gratitude that needs to be shifted to a different model. Tell us about those two models that you that you're talking about
1: Um, The the journey from writing a personal book about gratitude to writing one that included the public Mm -hmm. was was fascinating Mm -hmm. actually because you know I read a lot of other books about gratitude Mm -hmm. and there are some really good ones out there and the best ones all say that gratitude has a communal component, mm-hmm. that it really is a, a practice that will take you out of social isolation. Yes. But then that's where they leave it. Uh-huh. That's it. And it's just like, okay, do this and you're gonna find yourself more communally connected. Mm-hmm. And I just got really interested in that. I thought, well, what would that look like? And what if we had a public practice of gratitude, where does, it, where does gratitude show up communally? Right. And uh, this, this might be a little controversial, but I was writing this book during um, mostly during early 2017. Mm-hmm. So it was the first few months of Donald Trump being president. and you know so much contention and division mm-hmm. and uh, and you know I, w- I was not a supporter of President Trump, and I was feeling the pressure, you mm-hmm. know of that politically. So, so there was a lot of stuff swirling around me, you know, I was writing this. And I started noticing, as I was thinking about communal gratitude, that the president uh, talked about gratitude quite a bit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And when he talked about it, it was usually a, a demand for thanks
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Uh, from the American people or from some specific group.
0: From Canada for... Th- there you know, was
1: for, a, yeah. a, a set yeah. of tweets demanding yes. gratitude from Canada about right. the Keystone Pipeline. O- or then calling the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, an ingrate right. for not thanking him or, a- or asking. It wasn't really an ask. It was kind of a demand. Uh, the UCLA basketball players whom right. the State Department got right. out of jail in China right. saying, do you think they're going to thank me? No, they're not going right. to thank me. Mm-hmm. So I started noticing this and... I and, um, I went, where does that come from? Mm -hmm. And that led me into some really interesting historical um, exploration of how um, hierarchically structured political systems, uh, whether it was medieval Europe or ancient Rome or 19th century American South, um, often deploy gratitude as a mechanism to elicit loyalty. And so gratitude has often politically been used in these sort of hierarchical pyramid-shaped structures by people in upper classes, people in authority, to make sure that the folks underneath them Mm -hmm. uh, say thank you. Mm -hmm. And as part of that gratitude directed up to the people on the top, um, are loyal. Yes. And so it's deployed as, I've given you X, you mm-hmm. must give me why. right? And that's a very, very deep historical pattern in mm-hmm. Western society. Mm-hmm. Um, one that at various times in history, uh, some great thinkers have noticed and tried to uh, undermine. It mm-hmm. uh, wasn't until I wrote this book, for example, that I knew that Adam Smith mm-hmm. was actually worried. Um, so here we have the great... Founder of capitalism. Founder of capitalism, basically, um, is saying that if you deploy gratitude in this way, it will actually eventually undermine the capacity of a society to have a capitalist economy, right? uh, Because he saw it as dangerous in terms of obligation and loyalty, whereas as you needed to spread. gifts and abundance around this way instead of this way. It's absolutely fascinating to see that in Adam Smith, and uh, it also shows up in John Locke. It shows up in some of our great literature. Jane Austen writes
0: a lot about this. Well, because all of these, whether you're talking about capitalism or or John Locke's Enlightenment, is a critique of a gentrified world in Mm -hmm. which the lord of the manor uh, takes care of the serfs and the like, and and so this is a radical democratization that That's we're correct. talking about in in one way or another, which actually points toward a biblical vision of how you know we're we're supposed to become people of God in a different way around a table, which is your alternative model, right? Yeah,
1: and so it was absolutely fascinating, you know, to, yeah. to see that there was this historical precedent for what the new president was doing it was yeah. not something I'd ever been terribly aware of politically. Mm-hmm. But I certainly am now, mm-hmm. and anybody who follows uh, the president on Twitter mm-hmm. is well aware of mm-hmm. the fact that he deploys gratitude more like the... The pyramid structure. The pyramid structure of, right. the as you say, the feudal lords or the mm-hmm. 19th century mm-hmm. um, southern masters, the patriarch class. Mm-hmm. And so you have you have this happening in 21st century culture.
0: Yes.
1: And and I, as soon as I realized that this was a problem in western society and a problem now because of who I am, I started thinking about those biblical stories. Right, right. And you know one of the best biblical stories of course is uh in the Hebrew scriptures. I mean here we have it. In Genesis is that people build a pyramid to try to reach exactly. God, exactly, and that becomes a story about how God then takes that pyramid down. Mm-hmm. And so you get the story of the Tower of, of, yes, of the Babel, Babel yeah. and the tower falls. And so that story is sort of paradigmatic yes. of a lot of stories like that in mm-hmm. the Hebrew scriptures. You get, of course, the people of Israel in Egypt, a pyramid-shaped mm-hmm. society, yes. God takes them out Yes. of that right. to freedom. Right. And when God moves them out of the pyramid into freedom, God does not set up a pyramid in Israel. Mm-hmm. God instead takes them to a land of milk and honey where the dream is that everyone would have their own vine and fig tree.
0: Exactly, exactly right. And and in fact, the whole mm-hmm. history of Israel um, involves a period of monarchy which is presented biblically as a mistake. Well,
1: I mean, I, here I am talking to a Baptist pastor about right. this, but you, right. I mean, you know this. right? Because that, so this becomes the sto- another one of those central stories about abundance and scarcity, Right. is that, that if they live in a world of scarcity, pyramid structures are the political response to that. Right. You have to have one person on the top who's going to make sure that resources and goods are distributed throughout. And everybody needs to be loyal to that one person. Mm -hmm. But God, as a God of abundance, is trying to do something else. And it's trying to create this alternative land where everyone has access to goods and fruit of the land. And so, so you get this wonderful thing that happens then further down in the Hebrew Scriptures, where the people of Israel they they start having some success, yep. and so they look around and they are surrounded politically by pyramid-shaped societies, mm-hmm. Mesopotamia to mm-hmm. the north and Egypt to the south, and they say, "Hey, God, um, wake up here! You know, we want to be like the neighbors, right. um, and we want a king." Right. So Mesopotamia mm-hmm. has a king, Egypt has a pharaoh. We want a king. And God literally says in that chapter in Samuel, um, no, you really don't. Mm -hmm. And the people of Israel say, yes, yes, we do. And God says, well, if you have a king, it's going to result in higher taxes, more violence. uh, There will be injustice and unfairness. There will be great inequalities. There will be wars. Your children will not be safe. You don't want a king. God literally lays out exactly what a pyramid shaped society does in terms of injustice. And the people of Israel say, no, we want a king. And God says, all
0: right. Yeah. And I think this is part of the, um, the, the trick of learning how to read scripture is to read it in such a way that you can recognize that, everything is not there as a positive example to us of what we're supposed to do. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, like with our own children, God allows us to have things that, you know, mm-hmm. we we know are not good for us, but but we learn through this experience. And so when we go back to this, it's it's really about recognizing look at the this is a cautionary tale right and uh, and, and so but because we we have a, are people of hope and we have a sense that there is a future God is patiently bringing about in the world through long-suffering love uh, we we have seen that you know even movements of toward Democratic human rights and and, mm-hmm. and self government and things of that nature are the product of, of of moving away from that. You know, it doesn't happen in a straight line, and we go back and forth. We have autocratic leaders right now, but we're but in the long run, this is this is where we're moving. So it, you
1: it, do worry about theocracies of all sorts are yeah. always
0: this. I, exactly, they're always that. They're right there. always absolutely, this. Yeah.
1: and and the fascinating thing, of course, is throughout. Um, the Hebrew scriptures, the the Christian, I think, political vision is away from this because yeah. that's what Caesar was. And I think in Islam as well, which is a very mm-hmm. decentralized kind in, of... In most
0: sects of Islam, it, that's right. It's is, is, is mostly right.
1: about this. It's about right. the people. Right. Um, and so you you have this this ideal. If you are going to have a theocracy, it shouldn't be a pyramid. It should actually be the fullness of the people living together in prayer, in humility, in gratitude, um, and sharing the goods of the whole of the earth. So that's what the theocratic vision of Scripture really is. Mm -hmm. But because of human, I think, human corruption and power and how we view Mm -hmm. um, ourselves wrongly so often, we think that theocracy theocracies should be like that. Yes. And so we have created through time, mostly in Western civilization over and over and over again, this kind of structure. And then religion, you know, takes the, a big hit um, when these kinds of structures start failing because people say, Oh, well, the King was divinely appointed or the, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the, the slaveholders God that used the Bible to justify what they were doing in the South. And so when these structures, prove themselves to be unjust, and prove themselves to be wrong, which they always are. Right. Not a single one survives in the Bible, and not a single one ever has a good reputation any time in history. Mm -hmm. They always come out on the losing side of history. Um, When religion is complicit with that vision, Mm -hmm. religion fails too. Yes. At whereas there is actually an alternative vision for faith and religion in those scriptures, well, for and, society.
0: And, and it's, it, that alternative vision is epitomized in the weekly worship of the people of God uh, as Christians when they gather around the table. Right? Right. So the, we call that the Eucharist, that, that is the Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> and all the people are invited to that table, or should be, yeah. uh, you know, our churches, that's a whole other thing, right? As to whether you're welcome at the table of the Lord, as if it's our table, it's really the Lord's table. Uh, yeah. but, um, but when we come back from the break, I want us to pursue that a little more, because if we want to have hope for our wider political society, uh, it seems that our religious institutions, uh, the, we can talk specifically about the church uh, in this case, are supposed to model for the rest of society what is mm-hmm. possible as this small society, as this small community. And, and what's the trajectory of, the, of that as a community of gratitude that could translate into a politics of gratitude? Uh, we'll come back from the break and, and pursue that together. Great. Okay.
1: Our Friends Place is a transformative agency. It creates better worlds for young women with all kinds of experiences, neglect, abuse, poverty, and homelessness. It's a great place, and it's a place where if you want a second chance to be anything that you want in life, you can accomplish it at OFP.
0: Please visit ourfriendsplace.org. We're back with Diana Butler Bass. And Diana, we we were talking about the table, specifically in the Christian church, the Lord's table, the communion table, as being a model uh, that is an alternative to the hierarchical model, uh, because it's ever celebrating the abundance of God's provision. That's a a Christian symbol. It's not the only religious symbol image of that because other religions as well have similar concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about some other uh, images from religions of the world that that also share that notion of the table.
1: I think that is really important to do mm-hmm. these days, especially in the United States in a society that is becoming ever more deeply religiously pluralistic. Um, so, as a Christian, I think about the Christian stories a lot mm-hmm. uh, but then they immediately call me into thinking about the how that same concept echoes through other world religions right. and so in Judaism, of course, the you have Shabbat mm-hmm. and so every week
0: every week the
1: family gathers around a table mm-hmm. that celebrates God's abundance mm-hmm. and says thank you and then in Islam I I've never been, and I really I hope that I go sometime. Is during Ramadan, mm-hmm. every evening,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you fast,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: then there is the celebration right. of provision.
0: Iftar meal, that's right.
1: Yeah, yeah. and yeah. then you get to the end of it, and there's a huge feast, feast of to abundance. Eat. Yeah, that's right. And so they have that concept as well. And outside of monotheistic Western kinds of religions, uh, you have the, the Sikh community. Mm-hmm. Has these amazing meals right. that they offer to the whole community, mm-hmm. and that they are really meals of abundance, celebration, and gratitude mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. are opened up to the whole, mm-hmm. to the whole world, and uh, Hinduism as well. Mm-hmm. You bring. Food, food, and to, flowers,
0: and yes, yeah. all of that. Yeah, yeah the, right? the
1: food and the fruit of the earth to the mm-hmm. temple, right. and those are offered to the gods. But then those things are those offerings to the gods are turned Shared into a meal. The people, right? Yeah, right. And so in all of these different traditions that are very much now part of the American landscape, there's that same insight. Yes, is that that we live in an abundant world, that the universe has enough for all, that God or the gods. Provide yes. all that we need, and that our response to those gifts is sharing and gratitude. And so when you get to that point, you say, Oh my gosh, is so that every single world religion has the idea of a shared table? And meanwhile, we we're having sort of this huge fight right now with whether or not pyramid-shaped economic and political right. structures right. should be ruling over us. Right. And this is, this is our politics at this moment, right. is that our deepest longings, especially for anyone who is in any of these faith traditions, mm-hmm. is for this table of abundance. And meanwhile, our politics is moving into directions of inequality and mm-hmm. the elevation of a few over the many, right. the increasing shift of resources from all of us to the top of the pyramid Mm -hmm. and really authoritarian um, kinds of political directives. And so we think that there's a divide. It's not a divide between Republicans and Democrats. Mm -hmm. This is a divide between the deepest longings of the human heart for community and for, not in a sense getting what we deserve, but for living well into the world as the universe as god intends versus this system of corruption that is taking the heart away from all of us yes and that's really that is where the, the 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 theological spiritual rubber meets the road i think and and we need to address this head on the structure of the pyramid and the longing for the table
0: so i think that that's true Uh, certainly in our wider political life. Um, But I also think it's it's necessary for those of us who are part of religious communities to recognize that if we want to speak with moral authority to the wider world, Mm -hmm. we have to get our own house in order too. Mm -hmm. And do a searing critique of an honest review of how this has become true of our own uh, ecclesial life in, in Christian settings and other traditions. I, I don't want to speak to everybody else's tradition, but I can certainly speak to ours. Uh, so it, it, it feels like we are suffering from uh, some uh, rightful loss right now of uh, the uh, prosperity of our Christian churches and communities as we have developed them, because we have tied ourselves to these uh, pyramid structures. Yes, we have. And, and, and people are saying, and, and I don't think it's just people's desires. I think this is the Spirit's work in the life of the church mm-hmm. to say, uh, God will not rest if you keep trying to build Babel in the churches themselves. And, and eventually this is gonna come, come down on you. So you might as well participate in the in, in the work of dismantling in order to participate in the, the work of, of, of shared abundance at the table again. Uh, but this is part of what's all of our denominations are struggling with right now. Yeah. It's a narrative of decline, of, of collapse and all of that. But don't we deserve it to some extent?
1: Well, it's interesting because when you're around people in religious traditions and they're talking about what's going on in the United States right now, they talk about the rise of the nuns and how all these people are leaving religion Right, nun
0: is, by the way, (laughs) N-O-N-E-S. Yes, not not, not not the the sisters. Not the dear sisters, that's right. (laughs) Nuns being those who identify with no particular religious tradition. Uh, Good.
1: And so, so you, what what happens in that narrative is that people who are in religious institutions, religious communities, tend to blame the people who are leaving. Right. You know? Oh, it's their fault. They're lazy. They don't understand religion. They don't care. They're self-centered. Right. Whatever it is. Right. And, and I really think it's more of what what you've just explained is that uh, what if it's what if it's the fault of people in religious institutions? Right. And right. not because we're all bad people or that our institutions are are horrible. Certainly many of them are making some very significant mistakes at the moment, mm-hmm. um, but there's also a lot of really good churches and right. there are really beautiful traditions yes. um, in the midst of all that and synagogues and mosques as well. Uh, but the problem becomes is that even good churches have oftentimes succumbed to these pyramid shaped mm-hmm. structures. And um, it might not be a formal one, so you can think about a pyramid-shaped structure in Christianity, and immediately one's mind goes to the Catholic, the Catholic church. church, right? Sure. And you say, "Well, there is the problem, right?" You know, right. and mm-hmm. and I think it actually is yes. a big part of the problem of right. what's happened over there. Um, but then you have the more what I call the modified pyramid mm-hmm. structures, like the Episcopal Church, right?
0: Your own tradition, which now. is where yes. I go to church,
1: and we like to talk about how we're. You know open to the table but you know when it things really come down to it oh the bishop decides yes you know so so that happens over there so those are the obvious ones the less obvious ones are the ones that claim to be about the people but when you get in the door of a particular careful now you get
0: to my baptist (laughs) right into my baptist grill well yeah exactly we
1: set up these kinds of hierarchies within even free church settings, sure. and so they might be based on, oh, the preacher becomes essentially the bishop yes. of a very large congregation, right. for example, um, or you set up racial or gender hierarchies right. within a particular church mm-hmm. so that men have power and women don't, or right. uh, white people have power and the, the new uh, Latino and Latina mm-hmm. members of the church don't. Right, um, and so so we we gay set, and straight,
0: yeah, yeah, gay right. and straight. Yep. There's
1: all kinds of these these pyramids yeah. that even get set up within uh, denominations and institutions that claim to be non-hierarchical, right. and that's because we think that grace is scarce, or salvation is scarce, right. or religious power is scarce and somebody has to control it. The number of times in my career, and I've worked mostly with churches, where I start talking with people about these things, they say, oh, "But what about
0: order?" Yes.
1: You know, what about authority? "Oh, if you have a table, you know, anything could happen." And and so, as soon as people start worrying about order or authority, they always go and wind up over here. Yes. And I, and then I remind them, I say, well, you know, how do your kids come to dinner and throw food right. at one another? Mm. And they say, oh no, my kids are well-behaved. Mm-hmm. I said, well, if you have a table that's based on love, you're not gonna you know, pick up the pie and slam it in your brother's face right. over Thanksgiving dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain kinds of things that, out of love, out of compassion, out of your relationship with one another, that you assent to around a table right that makes everyone feel safe and everyone feel um valued, yes, and it's not disorderly, it's just a different kind of order,
0: right, right. and
1: so to kind of get people to move there and realize, oh yeah, the table is not about uh, disorder, but it's about an order that emerges around relationships and around abundance and around sharing
0: well I, I think when we think about this in our church and there's a there's a sign out in front of our church i don't know if you saw it when you came in but it says every body you know and it's it, it and we, we we really want to mean that i mean we say yeah. it so that we will mean it more it's kind of a practice you know of, uh-huh. of, of gratitude but we try to remind ourselves that we're not really uh, a a police force inside that church for who gets to to be at the table we're 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 not our job is not etiquette you know it's 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 to recognize that this is not our table it's the lord's table and jesus is the host you know and uh and and we are all guests at that table and I think part of the problem with with, um, religion is that you get to putting yourself in charge uh, somehow of that which uh, is not really yours to be charged, uh, to to be in charge of.
1: And putting yourself in charge, immediately you think
0: this. Exactly.
1: Somebody's on the top making a decision, the buck stops here. So even if it's not necessarily setting somebody up as a bishop or a king, um, as soon as you have that language of charge, you're, you're already moving towards that re- rebuilding the pyramid. Whereas the language is, well, what does the host ask yes, of right, us? Right. Or what's expected of guests? Yes. And that's a whole different kind of language to put around it. Right, right. But um, yeah, yes. I was a member of a church about 30 years ago in California. Very transformative experience, an Episcopal church that almost died. And it um, came to life again by embracing the idea of everyone being welcome. Right. And I remember right. about five years into that, that um, amazing experiment, I was talking to a, a woman who was on the church board and she looked at me. She said, yeah, you know, all are welcome. Our doors are open. This is the church for everyone. I'm not so sure we understood what that was really going to mean, <laughs> yeah.
0: and
1: right. and uh, so here were these people, you know, who were who were so open-minded and 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 wanted the community to really be reflective of the the whole vision of God. And when they got into it, they realized, wow, this is actually much harder and a bit scarier than we we anticipated. And the temptation then was to go back, you know, right. and sort of. Fix up the pyramid, make it a little bit more firm, uh, but they didn't. They kept right. re-exploring this territory right. and trying to understand, you know, what what it really means to be community. And they're thirty years into that experiment, and they've really learned a lot along the way. Well, Still Diana, an incredible, vital church.
0: Whether this book or any of the others you've written, there is, there are some consistent themes about uh, about calling on people of faith to live in faith. That mm-hmm. is. To, to risk uh, not to play it safe uh, to, to, um, to to be on a journey of adventure mm-hmm. to explore uh, and and to trust that uh, that when you do that uh, you'll experience more good things and joy there by by walking into to that way of, of living than by conserving and holding and protecting and and trying to play a, a game. Uh, of f- a few against the many. Over and over again, I hear those themes coming through and we're indebted to you for not only being a describer as a historian, but 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 also a prescriber by pointing to Seeds of Hope and Directions for us. Thank you for your work.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a joy, you know, this is my 10th book and um, I don't think I could have described the trajectory of it any better than you just did. And probably one of the things that makes me happiest in the last uh, couple years is that I started asking a question about what makes a good church, and I've wound up uh, with all kinds of amazing readers who are who are Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and, <laughs> and secular people who are asking questions about what does spiritual community look like yeah. in a post-religious age. Uh-huh. So that's been amazing. And the the emerging question for me is not what makes a good church, but what makes for a really good world. Wonderful. And I think that gratitude has everything to do with that.
0: For God so loved the world.
1: Yes, indeed. It was it was God's concern centrally uh, exactly. with Christians and we, f- we forget that.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you for being with us, Diane. God bless you and your work. Uh, thanks so much, George. Okay. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2019 by Faith Commons. The Gaston Christian Center is a forward-minded ministry providing space and services to nonprofit organizations and churches in Dallas. The ministries housed there include health services for low-income people, international relief, children's programs, and nine unique ethnic and refugee churches. To support their work, visit gastonchristiancenter.org.